Very glad to see you all here this evening. Um, I mentioned earlier this summer, but I, as I was planning this series for the summer, I think this was about March, maybe April, I was thinking through uh, the petitions, and I felt terrible at the idea of assigning the sixth petition to anybody, <laughs> which is why I chose it. Um, so God bless the study. I hope that we learn a lot from this because the Lord's Prayer truly is a blessing. Christian, do you realize that you're at war? We are at war right now, spiritually speaking. So to begin this study, I want to read to you a passage about our enemy, Satan, because it, I don't think we can accurately understand how important the sixth, sixth petition is without understanding our need. So let me read to you 1 Peter 5, 8. It's a short verse. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Do you think about your daily Christian walk in this way? Do you think about your enemy as an enemy who, who never sleeps, who is constantly seeking both to destroy your faith and that of your fellow Christians? I don't think we think like that very often. And until we have that perspective Something as radical as the sixth petition will be, mean nothing to you. It's like what we just sang. Still our ancient foe seeks to work us woe. And that's really the heart of the need of this petition. Because the entire Christian life is one of realizing that we are always in desperate need of spiritual help. Always. When you look through your life, you may notice sometimes you have seasons in, in your life where you, you realize that. Oh, I need help. I need to rely on God constantly. But then he gives that help, and what happens? You get comfortable. You, you, you get, the, the ease sets in. You get prideful, and you forget to pray as you once did. And this petition is meant to wake you up. We're meant to have that mentality all the time. That praying for safety from temptation is a prayer we should pray every day. I have been incredibly humbled through the preparation of this study, and it's probably been one of the most difficult things that I've ever had to work on. So I pray that the Lord would bless this. I'm going to read through the whole Lord's Prayer, and then I'll open us in prayer before we begin our study. Matthew chapter 6, beginning... In verse 9, Jesus says this, Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. And Lord, I thank you not only for your word, but that you condescended to us so much to give us a prayer as simple and profound as this. And Lord, I ask that you would teach us to use it. May we go to school on this prayer and leave a people who are diligent to get on our knees and pray for your deliverance every day. And I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So if, I hope you have a handout, our little roadmap for the evening, and we're going to walk through four observations 
of this petition, and then five guiding questions. I kind of stole this from Mr. Starkey because it was such a great uh, way to do things. Four observations and five guiding questions. So let's start with observation number one. This petition, which reads, um, <clears throat> lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, is one petition, not two. That might seem surprising because when you hear it, it sounds like two petitions. You're saying, lead me not, but deliver me. And a lot of Christian traditions treat it like this. For instance, the Roman Catholic tradition and the Lutheran tradition believe that the Lord's Prayer has seven petitions instead of six. But the Reformed tradition has consistently taught that this is a prayer with six petitions. And there are several reasons for that. Number one, grammatically, this prayer only contains six imperative verbs. Six verbs where we tell God to do something. And the, the verb for asking the Lord to lead us not is not an imperative. Secondly, there is a contrasting conjunction in the middle. The but deliver us from evil. It's a very emphatic conjunction, which shows that this is meant to be taken as one coherent whole, two halves of a whole. So that's the first observation. This is one petition, not two. Second observation might seem a bit bland. It begins with a conjunction. <laughs> you might be asking, why is that important? So the three uh, final petitions of the prayer all begin with conjunctions. Sorry, the the last two, which keeps them connected. The first three focus on the Father. Hallowed be thy name, um, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And the last three really focus upon ourselves. And these three are really connected by these conjunctions. So by this and being at the beginning of the sixth petition, we realize it's a daily need. Just like praying for your daily bread. Or praying for forgiveness. And I think this is important because sometimes I can tend to pray really readily for provision for today or forgiveness for today. But forget that praying for protection from temptation should be a daily ask as well. Because when it is looking into the future, it's almost like this is the only petition that's future oriented in a sense. It is a daily need. And yet, just like what Jesus says in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, when looking forward, we should seek first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness. And all other things will be provided for us. So observation number three. This is the final petition of the prayer. Aside from the closing, which we will handle next week, this is the end of the prayer. Which means we should pay very close attention to it. I don't know about you, but in my prayers throughout my life, I can have a tendency to start strong and peter out at the end. I get distracted, you know, I'm moving on, and then before I know it, I'm thinking about what I'm doing next month, and I'm like, whoa. I, I think that the fact that the petitions end with this one should guide us to, to learn that the beginning of our prayers and the end should be filled with guidance by this Lord's Prayer. And as an interesting uh, little thing to, to note, what word begins this prayer? Father. And what word ends this prayer? Evil. 
Or as we'll talk about later, it could mean evil one, as in Satan. So how interesting, this prayer that Jesus gives us begins with God the Father and ends with our greatest enemy. It's almost as if Jesus was trying to teach us, we cannot possibly begin to face the world without spending time with our Father. But we also should never finish time with our Father without turning again to face the world. So it's this really interesting bookend of the Lord's Prayer. So fourth observation. The first half of this petition is notoriously challenging to understand. I don't know about you, but I have talked with many Christians who struggle with this. Uh, interestingly, the current Pope, Pope Francis, has officially changed the wording for this prayer, this petition for the Roman Catholic Church. A number of Ro leading Roman Catholic cardinals got together and voted to change the wording from lead us not into temptation to do not let us fall into temptation. Do you see the subtle shift? It moves from active to passive language. And this is what the Pope said to justify this. He says, quote, it is not a good translation because it speaks of a God who induces temptation. I am the one who falls. It's not him pushing me into temptation to then see how I have fallen. A father doesn't do that. A father helps you up immediately. It's Satan who leads us into temptation. That's his department, end quote. It's a very subtle shift. And to be honest, the Pope's probably not alone in his confusion at times. I've heard Christians say this, I thought God can't tempt people. I can't pray this prayer. I've also heard this, what could I have done? God led me into it. Why would Jesus put something so confusing on the surface within his prayer that he gives to his disciples? But to start off, I want to be very adamant that just because this is difficult does not mean that we need to change it. This came from the, word, the very mouth of Jesus Christ. And sometimes he says hard things to wake us up. And we need to feather that gap of orthodoxy without feeling the need to change the wording so it's a bit more comfortable. So, but also, the Pope said, a father does not act like this. We need to let our definition of father come to us only from, the, from God's word. Not from how we perceive it it should be understood. So those are our opening observations. Let's move on to our five guiding questions as we work through this petition. Five guiding questions. Question number one, what is temptation? What is temptation? So I'm going to start off with a broad definition and then move on through some passages to help us try to understand what this means. So here's our broad definition. A temptation is any situation in life where, whether by our own sinful desires or by the work of Satan, we are enticed to forsake God's commands. This is an incredibly broad situation, and it can apply to so many things. For instance, you could say, my spouse died. And that could tempt you to think that God's not loving. Or it could be something as everyday as, that person spoke to me in a very unkind way, and they're a Christian. I can't believe in that God. It could be something as big as, I have a chronic illness that's not going away. God, 
I have to trust you through this. Or something as mundane as, it's really hot outside and my AC went out. Why today? A temptation is a situation that entices you to forsake God's commands. Now, the word temptation usually carries a, a negative connotation, and it should. Let me read a passage from James 1. James 1.14 says, Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. So this is talking about the fact that really the problem of temptation so much comes from you. Do you remember that interaction that Jesus had in the Gospels where he said, Nothing outside a man going into him makes him unclean. Rather, it's the things within people that make them unclean. For out of your very heart spews evil desire, lust, covetousness, pride, fear. So that's what James is talking about. That desire that comes up from within your sinful body. We also learn about what temptation is through the experience of Jesus himself. So we are tempted inwardly. Jesus, we see here, is tempted outwardly by Satan. So in Matthew 4, it says, Then Jesus, this was following his baptism, was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. And the devil put Jesus in situations of need to see how he would respond. Jesus had not eaten for days, and what does Satan ask him to do? Make yourself bread. End of the trial. Jesus was in an incredibly humiliating position. And what does Satan ask him to do? He says, bow down to me and I'll give you everything. So that's that kind of outward temptation that Satan can work. Putting, you in a, putting someone in a tough situation and trying to draw out unfaithfulness. Another passage that shows an example of what a temptation is is 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 9. Paul says this, Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. And we know that having wealth in and of itself is no sin. However, how you respond to it determines whether or not it was a temptation. So with this logic, we can easily say, along with Luther, and though this world with devils filled... Right? There are so many things in this world that can be either a temptation or a cause for temptation. And as a useful caveat, not everyone is tempted by everything in this world. But everyone in this world is tempted by something. Something worth keeping in mind. Just because you are weak in an area does not mean someone else is. So as we move forward, I encourage you to think, what are your temptations? What are those emotions that tend to, to control you more than others? What are those things in this world that are especially tantalizing to you? What is that sin that seems to always be lurking at the door? Think about that as we move forward. Because this is what Jesus wants us to ponder. So before we get to the second question, I want to make a very clear statement God himself tempts no one in his person. The Lord is not a tempting father. And James 1.13 says this explicitly. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. It's very blunt, and we all have to agree with this. 
God himself in his being cannot and does not tempt anyone. Let's keep going, though, because the tension is a bit more strong than just that. So the word here in this prayer for temptation is parasmos. Parasmos. So let me read a couple passages for us to help us understand how to grasp this. So this James passage says, God does not parasmos. He does not tempt. Well, listen to some other passages. Genesis 22.1, God tested Abraham. It's the same word. Or listen to 2 Chronicles 32.31, God left Hezekiah alone to test him that he might know all that was in his heart. Same word. Now let's look at the New Testament. The same thing when Jesus was led into the wilderness to be tested by the devil. It's the same word. And that's the same word that we find in our prayer today. I'm not trying to make us lose faith in the scriptures. I'm simply trying to get us to dwell in this tension and so we can understand what should we do with this. Because we literally have the phrasing, God does not parasmos. While in other places, it seems like the Lord is intimately involved with it, in a sense. So how do we understand this? We can learn a lot by seeing how our modern translations handle this. For instance, the ESV, you might have noticed, sometimes calls this word temptation, sometimes calls it a trial or a test. This is very intentional by the translators. Because when God is the one doing it, Typically, the ESV would call it a trial or a test. You know, it has a lot less negative connotations. And this is because the Lord does not entice people to do evil. His desire is people's good, the edification of faith. On the opposite side, however, whenever Satan is the one doing parasmos, the ESV renders it temptation. To show us what his desire is. His desire is for you to fall. For you to fail. And to forsake Jesus Christ. And both of these can be at play at the same time. Just as we see in what happens to Job. In the same test of Job. God is doing it to prove and preserve his servant's faith. While Satan is doing it to show that he can fall. And yet this is not some dualism. It's not like those are just two equal forces fighting. No, Satan is a mad, raving dog on a leash. And God holds that leash. And he goes no further than God lets him. So let's keep going. So that's what temptation is. Number two, I promise these next questions won't take as long. What does it mean for God to lead us into temptation? We need to know what this means if we are told to ask God to not lead us into temptation. I believe that God leads people into temptations in two ways, outwardly and inwardly. Outwardly and inwardly. First, God can lead someone into temptation outwardly when he puts them intentionally in an incredibly difficult circumstance. Let me explain. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson, wonderful pastor and teacher, makes a great point right here. I'm going to take this almost verbatim from him. He says that whenever we are tempted, there's two factors at play. There's our desire, and then there's the opportunity to enact the desire. 
Very often you have the desire to do something evil, but by God's grace, you do not have the opportunity to do it. And sometimes the opposite is the case. You have the opportunity to do something really terrible, but by God's grace, you have not the desire to do it. Being led into temptation outwardly are those moments where you have both the desire to, wrong, to do wrong and the opportunity. It's a terrible trial. I believe this is what happened to the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. In Matthew 26, 41 is the only place in the Bible where similar wording to this phrase is found. Jesus says to his disciples, stay awake that you may not enter into temptation. It's very similar. And what, is, what does the Lord do to them? Their desire is failing. They are not staying awake. They're not watching themselves. And then the Lord brings in the time of testing. Jesus leaves and the, sh the shepherd is struck. And what do the sheep do? They scatter. Right there, you see that the evil desire is matched with the opportunity. And so when we, we'll get to this, but we need to keep that in mind when we pray for the Lord not to lead us into temptation, to protect us from those instances. So secondly, the Lord also leads people into temptation inwardly, and this is a hard one, by handing you over to your very desires for a time. Sometimes God does this. Apart from the Lord's preserving presence in your life, you would utterly give in to temptation every time. Do you realize that? Any strength that you have towards any type of vice is a gift from God. The Heidelberg Catechism puts it this way. It says, By ourselves we are too weak to hold our own for even a moment. So true. And there are even times when, for his own glorious purposes, God intentionally withdraws his preserving protection so that his children can feel the full brunt of temptation. Listen to what the Westminster Larger Catechism says in question 195. It says, The most wise, righteous, and gracious God, for diverse, holy, and just reasons, may so order things that we may be assaulted, foiled, and for a time led captive by temptations through Satan. That's tough to hear. And yet this is how our Father works at times, especially with his children. But I do want to make the caveat. Notice what each of these confessions have said. For true Christians, it's for a time. The sorrow lasts for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Listen also to what the Genevan Catechism says. This is one that Calvin himself wrote. He says, As God defends believers by his protection, so those whom he means to punish. He not only leaves destitute of his grace, but also delivers to the tyranny of Satan, strikes with blindness, and gives over to a reprobate mind, so that they are completely enslaved to sin and exposed to all the assaults of temptation for a time. Have you ever seen this in your life? Where you look back and you're like, what happened? I thought I was doing so well. With, you know, with insert your temptation. But then, for a time, the Lord handed you over to it. And you might be thinking to yourself, why would God do this? 
Let me give you four reasons. This is taken from Thomas Watson's book on the Lord's Prayer. Four reasons why the Lord leads his people into temptation for a time. Number one, to test your heart for true faith because he loves you. This is what God does to Abraham. He gives him the son that he longed for for 60 years and then says, go and sacrifice him. To prove that Abraham was a true child. Number two, God does this to humble you. To humble you and realize that you need his help. This is what God did to Paul. Do you remember when he says, so that I would not become overly prideful because of what I saw in a, in a revelation? God sent me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment me. Number three, God does this to make you ready to help other people. This is the same thing that happened to Paul as well. He was given terrifyingly difficult situations, and then he said, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, I am able to comfort others with the comfort that God gave me. Perhaps that's why you're dealing with what you're dealing with now. So that you can bless other people with the gospel. And lastly, God does this to make us all long for heaven. This is why the Bible describes heaven as rest. Rest. Because we are at war. So often in my life, I think ahead to like the next year, and I'm like, hmm, that will be rest. Finally, I'll be able to be at ease. And it's like in this prayer, Jesus is trying to teach you, look for that in the next life. For there will be many trials in this life. But take heart, Jesus has overcome the world. Question number three. With that in mind, what does it mean to ask God to not lead us into temptation? So when we pray this in the negative, we are asking God to support us and to make us constantly aware of the spiritual warfare we are under. We, 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 we speak to the Lord, God, you know where I'm weak. Please help me. Watch over me. Guide me. Abide with me. The Heidelberg Catechism says this. It says, And so, Lord, uphold us and make us strong with the strength of your Holy Spirit so that we may not go down to defeat in this spiritual struggle. And to phrase it in a different way, when we pray this to our God, it's like we're saying, Father, you know that I cherish my sin so often way more than I should. And you would be just to hand me over to it. But I ask you in your mercy to please deliver me from evil. It's a desperate, desperate prayer which I think it really fits with Psalm 19, verse 13 right there. Lord, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. All of us fall every day in many ways, but there is a big difference between a momentary, momentary failure and a presumptuous sin. When Peter fell from Christ, that was a momentary failure. He did not premeditate it. He did not plan, but he fell pretty hard. And was restored. Judas planned. He connived. He hoped. That is a presumptuous sin. And we should pray to God. Keep me from those. Now, personally as I move forward towards ordination. We live in a world where. Stories of fallen ministers. 
seem incredibly too common. And this is a prayer I return to every week. I might think I'm strong in many areas, but the reality is that strength, if I have it, is a gift. And I need to get on my knees and say, God, for the sake of your gospel, lead me not into temptation. Deliver me from evil. Question number four. The last two are pretty quick. What does it mean for God to deliver us from evil? Throughout the Bible, God is presented both as the one who places his people in trials and the one who redeems them from those trials. Think of the Exodus. God led them to Egypt, but then he also told Abraham, Abraham, I will take them out. And this is the same with all of your trials. Here the Lord shows us the means whereby we are freed from the grip of temptation by the delivering hand of God. Look at Psalm 50 verse 15. The Lord says, Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you. I will. And you shall glorify me. Josiah talked about this a few weeks ago, but there's this kind of fervency here. We cry to God in an imperative, deliver me. You promised that you would. Fulfill your promises. Deliver me from evil. Now, it's worth mentioning that sometimes the Lord delivering you from evil doesn't look the way you want it to be. A lot of times we think delivering from evil and we think, Lord, you completely remove me from the situation or you completely remove whatever temptation there is. Whereas God's deliverance is much more manifold than that. He's seeking his glory. And God is glorified when you as a Christian sometimes remain in the struggle, but God gives you the strength to make it through and be faithful. Our God knows how to deliver the righteous from temptations. Question number five, last one. How should we understand this corporately? How should we understand this corporately? You'll notice a theme through this whole prayer. Every single one of these is plural. Every single one. I don't think it's wrong for you to pray this privately, personally, but I think Jesus was onto something. This is a prayer for all Christians, not just for some Christians. And do you realize how much other people in this church need you to be praying this for them? Perhaps you are not in a position of desperate need of help, but one of your brothers or sisters is. You just might not know it. This is meant to put a check on your selfishness and to not gauge the, your need for protective prayer simply by on, oh, I think I'm doing pretty good today. We're supposed to view the church as a, as a wonderful whole, the body of Christ. And if one part is hurting, we're all hurting. I've had some weeks while I've been working at this church where in the, over the span of a week, I've maybe gotten together with four college students and four church members just trying to meet with people and encourage them in the word. And sometimes I come on a Sunday morning and I am burdened because those eight people that I met with are all burdened with something. And so often you probably come to church and you don't think about the spiritual need of your family. And I say that because I'm guilty of that. So we need to come into church thinking, how can I pray for the edification of not just myself, but this whole body, because we all need deliverance. 
So three quick applications as we close. First of all, for those of you who would deem yourself mature in Jesus or strong in the faith, I challenge you, pray this daily, not just for yourself, but for others. That's the mark of Christian maturity. How do you serve the weaker brother? Now, for those of you who would see yourself as young Christians or learning, go to school on this prayer. Pray it verbatim every day. And teach yourself through discipline to pray for your spiritual protection as often as you pray for some kind of physical provision. Lastly, perhaps there's some of you here who are overwhelmed by sin and temptation and hell itself. I want to promise you, God will deliver you. Call out to Jesus Christ for help and he will hear you. There is much grace to be found in him. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this, this prayer and this evening. Lord, there is so much here. And yet you have given us such a simple prayer. Thank you. I ask, Father, for all of us, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I ask this in the name of Christ. Amen.